0: For Jill Bennett, this is your guest host, John L. Daly. So, we've got a lot of stuff for you this morning, and I think you will enjoy it. We'll be dealing with the medical system, air travel and entertainment, how they are coping with COVID-19. But first, something you might not have really wrapped your head around, the impact of this pandemic on real estate. Joining us now, the spokesperson for MLA Canada, Cameron McNeil. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning, John. How are you? Excellent. So, just uh, trying to put my head around this, I guess uh, the first thing that pops to mind is open houses. (laughs) Holy smokes, (laughs) man. Like, what do you do? I mean, let's face it, sometimes you got to move, sometimes people, you got to sell a house, sometimes you're looking for a place. You know, um, if you're not sick, I mean, the world doesn't come to a screeching halt what are you doing to cope with this thing
1: well our our firm tracks the entire market and uh, we also uh, do a lot of work with real estate developers so we have mm. large real estate developments with large openings and of course covid uh, is a pretty frightening and fluid situation right now and uh, it's it's definitely uh, changing and and mm. and causing our industry to to be as innovative as possible we first started the, seeing the effects around uh, the Chinese New Year time at the end of January. And, and you may recall this was the time when uh, restaurants, particularly um, Chinese restaurants, were starting to um, not see people uh, come yeah. out to public you know, public gatherings. Yes. And uh, that, was, that was when we first started seeing it uh, show up in the open houses.
0: My oh my, yeah. and and so I mean, you know, we're we're into sort of like a new age, high tech kind of thing where people are doing virtual reality, virtual tours, things like that. I mean, you can yes. you can do three hundred and sixty spinabouts inside of uh, you know almost any home that's for sale, any suite that's for sale. On the Absolutely. other hand, there's nothing like actually you know physically being there when you're you're going to spend a million dollars or $800,000 on a, a condo or something like that. You know, you, you, you got to touch it, taste it, feel it. Um, how do you get past that? Are you just having to schedule things, book things one at a time? Absolutely. So uh, oh. in February,
1: it was, it was moved from uh, the typical traditional way. We would see real estate um, uh, being sold, um, which of course was a mixture of, One-on-one appointments you're referring to, and I moved just to exclusively one-on-one appointments. Mm-hmm. And we actually saw all of the statistics in February continuing to increase. You may recall that the wow. bottom of the Va- the bottom of the Vancouver market was actually uh, summer of or started to decline, I should say, in the summer of 2018,
2: mm-hmm. and it
1: continues to decline until approximately the summer of 2019. And since the summer of 2019, it's been in an upward trajectory. Very low housing supply. Lots of immigration, mm-hmm. so we've been in a, in a you know fairly balanced. I won't say robust, but a very improving real estate market. Uh, every month over month, it's been improving. Mm. And that is also the case with February. Now, of course, March will be the real question mark. Yeah. How does, how is all this affecting the March numbers? Um, however, surprisingly, we are continuing to see more real estate transaction volume than I would have guessed. Really, and. Yeah, you bet. And I think uh, I think part of that, of course, is low industry environment. And there's a real mixed feeling around around um, uh, the long term effects of covid. I think short term, you know, of course, everybody is um, is uh, watching this very carefully and it's very disruptive to people's lives. But a lot of people are feeling that soon, you know, fairly soon in the months ahead, life's sure. going to move back to a near normal. And this could be a good time to buy, actually.
0: Yeah, well, I, I guess the the other thing too is you know you sort of look at the economy and you say, well, okay, my my reserves, my uh, you know disposable income, my savings, and so forth. Depending on where you put your money, whether you had yeah. it in stocks, whether it's uh, in a you know RSP or something like that. Yeah, you know, you, maybe you feel uncertain because you feel that your net worth has gone down, so now you're not prepared to spend as much perhaps on a house or a condo or something like that but the flip side of that is as an investment wow I'd much rather have my money stuck in real estate than in the you stock bet. market yeah you bet uh, you know the,
1: during times of uncertainty tangible assets are always um, uh, seem to outperform um, uh, the equity market and and I think it's also important uh, for us all to remember that Canada as a, as, a, as a global place is, mm. is a top destination. This is not a localized problem, of course. This is course. A, a, glo- a global problem. And when, when this all settles, Canada will still be perceived as a very high brand globally. And yes. our, our um, immigration numbers have really been increased in the last few years. We're expected to have uh, over a million people, new Canadians coming into this country to live permanently uh, uh, over the next three years. $350,000 wow. a year and that is up from just a couple of years ago of 250 and of course those new Canadians are are free to live anywhere they want in the country and they go to the, the mm. you know the most desirable places and greater Metro Vancouver is is one of those locations and so we have that incredible um, uh, fund you know that's one of the strong fundamentals is continuing sure. to drive a real estate market but we just simply don't have the housing supply so mm. to, you know, how does this how does this impact or how uh, Covid affecting all of this. Well, when it all settles, um, it's only going to continue to put a spotlight on Canada as a as a perceived stable, safe place with with you know strong medical system, um, you know clean air, clean water, and all of the great things that we're known for. That's only going to uh, is you know be. Um, It'll uh, be a plus. Other place in the work.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is a big plus. Yeah. And actually, I think, you know, two, three, five years from now, we look back on this, assuming that we get through it the way it looks like we might get through it. Yeah. Uh, you know, for, for somebody who's looking to buy uh, real estate to uh, make a, a life choice as well as an economic choice, mm-hmm. um, Canada and particularly British Columbia, I think, will look so good because we dealt with this thing very efficiently and very effectively compared to other jurisdictions. I mean, if you look at the numbers right now, you look at the States, you look at other places, you've got you know, Italy, my Lord, you have to say, thank God we've got the Canadian medical system and we've got the BC medical system. It's done a much better job, at least at the outset, in coping with this pandemic than, than other jurisdictions. And if I were coming here from Asia or coming here from, you know, South America or, uh, you know, the, the Middle East or something like that, I'd say, wow, this is, you know, this is where I want my kids to be coming up be growing. Uh, this is a a good, healthy environment. Absolutely. And I, you know, our, for the last hundred
1: years, our country has been built on, on immigration and, um, and people from all over the world, uh, making a choice to call Canada home, mm-hmm. and and you know, these these times of instability uh, globally are only going to uh, continue to make Canada a top choice. And, and interestingly, of course, um, your listeners will will probably uh, recall that the interest rates have really come down.
2: Uh, yeah, in response
1: to this, Holy so we moly. have yeah, you know, we have uh, you know uh, uh, some oil. Uh, um, Uh, Pricing coming down, which is which is you know could affect our long term Mm -hmm. uh, economy. Um, But of course, our federal government is responding. It's come down um, twice, fifty basis points on two separate times in the last two weeks. It's at generational lows right now, and you know many would argue it's 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 bouncing on the bottom. And, And a customer could get a five year fixed mortgage for close to two and a quarter percent. It's very, very low cost of borrowing right now. That's sweet. Yeah. Holy it moly. Is. It is, but but it's important to know that uh, when, we've, when we have limited housing supply, mm. that when cost of borrowing comes down, usually prices go up sure. in response. So this is a short-term window of opportunity, I think, for people. Um, so I think we'll be in a low-rate interest rate environment for, for the foreseeable future, perhaps for a few years. Um, however, prices um, will, will increase upward as, as more people can afford, uh, the cost of borrowing is down, people can afford to buy more. So um, they are you know, inversely correlated. We'll see prices rise in response to the interest rates
0: decline. Right on. So the, there's the news you need to know, uh, news you can use. Basically, interest rates are low. If you're going to buy, buy now because this window could close in two or three months yeah you know and i and i would say you know
1: as all things in real estate uh obviously don't be hasty um mm-hmm. this isn't gonna this isn't gonna bounce in in a matter of weeks um obviously taking care of ourselves and our and our families and loved ones is, is our number one priority and as, you're right as the months uh start to to um uh to show that, yeah. that things are stabilizing i think this is gonna be a uh a good time to buy it's our prediction that the second half of this year is we're going to see a quite a quite a strong rebound in in the overall sales volumes and even the the uh, price values escalating further
0: awesome cameron mcneil uh, hey. partner in mla canada thank you so much really appreciate it thank you john have a good morning well it's my pleasure uh a good friend brett Bala is with us. He is the publisher of Western Aviation News and he's going to tell us what's happening in the aviation industry right now as a result of COVID-19 and particularly what's going on with WestJet. Brett, good morning. Good morning, John. So, um, uh, Canadian press broke this story, I believe. Uh, Looks like things, or at least the uh, unions at WestJet have been given some pretty grim information.
3: Yeah, they really have. Uh, they've been given information about job cuts, maybe upwards of 50%, um, which is just outstanding. I, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's hard to wrap my mind around how big the impact COVID is having on the airline industry. Mm-hmm. And last night, uh, WestJet was talking about taking measures to ensure the financial viability of the airline. Wow. And well, to I get, put in con- Yeah, please it, go ahead. It, yeah, just to put that in context, like, WestJet is an airline that is used to making profits year after year after year after year. And now they're talking about survival. That's what that means, survival. It's just mind-blowing.
0: That's pretty scary. And, I mean, you know, we've we've gone from having, uh, you know, Air Canada, CP Air, uh, which then became Canadian Airlines, and um, uh, Max Ward, Ward Air, uh, down to Air Canada and WestJet and you know if westjet uh, is on shaky or feels that it's on shaky ground wow that's that's a little scary because you know that the health of uh, of aviation in canada and canada's always had a strong aviation sector uh it's really, really uh, troubling because, of course, you know whether or not you can get a decent deal. Assuming we get through this COVID thing, uh, you know whether or not you can get a decent price to, you know, go to Montreal or Newfoundland or something like that is dependent on on basically on some sort of you know market balance. And if there's no market balance, if we lose WestJet, you know, what are we left with, really?
3: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think we're far from the point where we'll lose WestJet, but um, it, it just tells you that if these airlines don't act, mm-hmm. that they'd be in real trouble. And uh, it, it, it does point, in a certain way, it does point to a much better management style at airlines. It, oh, really? it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago that airlines would try to keep flying mm-hmm. no matter what. Right. Keep the roots going. Keep the roots going. Now they seem to be reacting much more quickly. Um, so WestJet came out with this. You know, they're they're projecting a capacity mm-hmm. cut, which they'll announce next week. Between they're thinking sixty percent international, forty percent domestic.
4: Wow. Um,
3: it, it, Air Canada hasn't announced drastic cuts like that yet, um, but you have to think it's going to be coming there too.
0: Yeah. Well, people have to self isolate and so forth. You come back from outside of Canada and you're you're yeah. down for fourteen days. I mean if I have to make a choice and I'm talking to people who, you know, were going to go places I mean, they're just not going. Nobody's going anyplace. Uh, That's you know, exactly
3: what's happening, yeah.
0: Craig, who was going to Las Vegas, said, you know, we just canceled that on Wednesday because, you know, can you imagine if you went and then you came back and you couldn't work for 14 days and your yeah. kids couldn't go to school and, you know, holy smokes, just turn your right. life take, upside take, down.
3: Take the week you've been away. Take the take the long weekend mm. you've just taken and then add 14 days to that. Wow. Uh, well." That's not a work price I'm prepared to pay, but uh, oh. and I'm sure most people aren't either. And uh, it, it, so it, it really raises the calculation for every single traveler: Do I really have to go? Totally. It's... And when uh, sixty to seventy percent of your plane is filled with leisure travelers, well, mm-hmm. the calculation comes back: You don't have to go.
0: Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Boy, oh boy. Well, listen, Brett, you know, I said this to you last week. Uh, I'm back on the beat and I say it to you now on the filling in for Jill Bennett. We need to stay in touch because this is a very fluid situation. Uh, you know, we depend on, on charter airlines as well as SCEDs and the impact at the airport will be substantial. Uh, it will.
3: And also, if you're trying to change your flights, be patient. That's what the airlines are saying. They're just absolutely inundated with phone calls, web uh, requests, and social media. They're just they're barely keeping up with the demand to change
0: or cancel flights right now. Brett Bala, publisher of Western Aviation News. Go to westernaviationnews.com. Thank you so much, Brett. My pleasure. The COVID crisis, the pandemic continues, and you know, we sometimes get caught up in hearing the same voices again and again. Let's reach outside of the box. Let's go to Dr. Michael Kenyon, the leader of the intensive care unit group at Nanaimo Hospital. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Good to have you on board. So uh, we know that we have, I think, officially announced uh, one case of uh, COVID-19 in the Island Health Region. Uh, Hopefully, it'll keep keep low, low numbers, Uh, but... Uh, how are we prepared outside of the Lower Mainland? We we hear about VGH, St. Paul's, uh, places like that, but how do you feel uh, the island is set up for dealing with COVID? Um, I'm actually not on the island right now. I know, yeah. My, I are, are you still up in Kitimat? Uh,
5: I'm up in Terrace, yeah. Nice. Which is the only ICU in the northwest region, uh, officially. Are you working there? Uh, Yeah, I work up here as well.
0: Oh, wow,
5: fantastic. So I split split each month between the two places. So I kind of, uh, at the moment, I'm more in the northern health side of things. Okay. Well, that's good. I've been part of that as well.
0: So do we have any cases in the north?
5: Not not yet. That's good. There are people that have returned from travel uh, that are, you know, being watched um Mm -hmm. and and i think some in vancouver that have been contained and not come back here but um at the moment nothing positive here Uh, but yeah obviously everyone's ready for it the seed is in the wind yes we look at what's happened in seattle um i don't know that we can contain all of it but we can slow the rate Uh, and you've seen these i'm sure these diagrams of flattening the curve with the yes. social distancing and so on uh, and that does help because mm-hmm. our healthcare system could get overwhelmed uh, it's not as well provisioned as many others uh, particularly on the critical care side yes uh, we have uh, canada is actually quite far behind there's nothing especially bad about
0: is it is it because we simply just don't fund uh, you know for for crises? we're not prepared for I mean, you know we we get the we get the sort of every year we go through the uh, let's prepare for an earthquake and we have an earthquake day, and you know people say, you know do you do you have like seventy two hours worth of supplies in your house and so forth? But when you think about it, if you end up with a big medical crisis, I mean, how many ventilators are there in the north? Yeah, uh, there are very few is the
5: answer. So mm-hmm. uh, I'll give you an example. Countries that that have struggled with this have a lot more ventilators than us. Like the Italians, for 100,000, really? they're probably at least 50% better off than we are. Wow. So we' got an article in The Globe about two days ago
2: mm-hmm. uh,
5: where at last someone highlighted this. Um, But in B.C. and Alberta, we're particularly badly off. This is highlighted in the fact. And this is not this government. This has been a chronic problem. Um, I don't want to bore your listeners with this. I want to hear more about coronavirus. But if you want to know what the problem is,
2: Mm -hmm. one of
5: the things associated with survival, like hardcore survival in this of the very sick people, is pretty much how many ventilators you have. Right. Um, And it's not just the machines. It's not just having machines in place. What happens is that those ventilated beds, that investment in critical care also means nursing investment. Yes. And those are the most skilled nurses that you can also task all over the hospital when other things go wrong. And that Mm. raise the general standard of nursing. Uh, We're lucky Canadian nursing happens to be very good. As you can hear from my accent, I'm originally from South Africa. Indeed. Um, and uh, I've got to tell you, the nursing here is some of the best in the world. Uh, and thank God for the nurses. It's actually them that are the backbone of our response uh, in just about everything. Indeed. Uh, but the level you train them to is the, the real investment, not the machines. Right. You know, having, having those bodies in place. so. What are the numbers like? Well, for Canada, we only have about, I think, 13.5 ICU beds per 100,000. And it's much less than that ventilated beds. It's about 9.8. It's compared to the United States, who I know are not very wealthy. They have about 35. Uh, but a lot of countries like Germany are close behind them. Italy, not too far either. I think Italy's in the 20s per 100,000.
0: Wow. So you're telling me that and, we're, and, we're basically, we've got a third the number of ventilator beds, roughly, maybe even less than a third the number of ventilator beds that they have per 100,000 in the States. Correct. My Lord. So um, we, we a, better stay in healthy. In better
5: are, are worse than that.
0: <laughs> oh,
5: my. Well, we, we have about nine in BC per 100,000. Uh, and on the island, mm-hmm. we have a lot less. We have about six per 100,000. Wow. Um, Smokes. And the problem is we don't have nearly as much surge capacity because we don't have step-down units. What's that? So in Italy, one of the amazing things was they... So step-down unit is something in between ICU and a ward. Oh. See, with us, we have not only a restricted amount of ICU capacity, but we have... Uh, a big gap in care between what an ICU nurse can do and what a ward nurse can do and there's nothing in between. Oh my. Hmm. Okay, so so there's been plenty of advice to get step down units but we've been very slow to propagate them.
0: So this is how you would transition from intensive care, respirator, ventilator, etc. Yeah. to, yeah. you know, basically almost rehab and award till you're 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 you're.
5: and it's ironic they haven't invested in because luckily and hopefully there are more patients in that group who are above the skill level of the ward but below the requirement of an icu it's just sort of a step up as well as a step down unit and it's kind of where you train the farm team for icu right on makes Um, sense and so you know we, we really need to do this um I'll give you an example, and you know I'm not supposed to say things about island
0: health. So it it, it sounds yeah. like we're, so we're... That's that's
5: another thing we're missing. So we don't have enough ICU nurses because we don't have an investment in ICU. We're one mm. of the worst of the G20 countries in that respect. My. Uh, we also don't have the backup capacity of step-downs because we just haven't gone there yet. And that's not because we're not asking. So, for example, we're building a new ICU in the Nanaimo. Yeah. It's a tiny increase in our capacity. We haven't had a new ICU since 1968. Wow. The number of beds hasn't gone up since 1968. It's actually gone down because we've had to make room for equipment. Okay, Mm -hmm. And it's woeful compared to the population, which has increased about three times in that area. Okay. Because of the retirement and whatever. Wow. Uh, And so the problem is that uh, we're getting a new ICU uh, that's, about a 25 30% increase in our capacity at most. Uh, ICU needs in North America, and we're part of North America when I last checked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. ICU needs have gone up about 14% per decade. Mm. And it's kind of a reflection of a worldwide trend. Uh, and ventilated days have gone up about 60% in the last decade. Oh boy. We haven't seen anywhere near that investment in critical care. Uh, And so we're building this new ICU with this modestly increased capacity. And they've, with some foresight, shelled in space, but don't have the money, they tell us, to build a step-down unit of the same size. Okay. Well, we we haven't invested a cent in that, just the shelled-in space. And the thing is, if you had it ready to go, you could literally double your capacity during an epidemic. Yes. So this isn't a matter of haves and have-nots. Okay. So... You know, here we are in BC, a wealthy province, sitting with between six and nine ventilator beds per hundred thousand. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. Newfoundland has nineteen. I don't think Newfoundland's a wealthy province. No. Okay, it's a, it's a question of what choices you make. Mm-hmm. Ventilators cost between ten and thirty thousand dollars. Depends how fancy you want to be. Well, at the moment, we're provisioning all our hospitals with computers. And some of those computers together with the Dragon Dictation package and everything cost ten thousand dollars. Sure. Price is ventilated. Well a computer isn't gonna keep you alive. It can't ventilate you. It's not clinician design technology, it's designed for accountants. hmm Oh you know, uh, smokes. And we're making massive investments in that and the opportunity costs are, are huge. You know, if you go to the uh wiki webpage for Cerner, uh, $234 million so far for the computer system in Nanaimo. How much does the new ICU cost? $25 million. Mm-hmm. You could have nearly 10 of them. You know? Holy smokes. And I know they have running costs, so we're not going to build 10, but we certainly could use an increase in capacity. We're way behind the times. So, and I don't care if it sits empty half the time. Those nurses can be tossed in other places like emergency that are having a hard time. Indeed, They can still learn, they can still work. So, to cut to the chase here, the Chinese almost ran out of nurses Yes, during this COVID thing. And God bless them. The, uh, the nurses came in from other places, like heroes, if you ask me, because they didn't know what they're coming into. Some of them are coming in to get sick and die. You know? Indeed. Uh, but they came to back it up. The Chinese almost ran out of people. When the Chinese ran out of people that's when you know you have got an epidemic Uh, I guess so Italians have more machines than us and they increased because they do have a step down mentality and they have a very good cardiovascular uh, CCU network Mm -hmm. one of the best in the world let's not make the mistake of thinking they third world, they're about the third best in the world.
0: Uh, Italy is, wow Italy
5: is, they're really very good, most of the coronary care stuff the clockbusters and Mm-hmm. angiography and angioplasty and stuff that was all developed there they did the research they did the big trials so mm-hmm. they have that capacity they have good ambulance capacity you know? yes. and they ran out of resources so they didn't just run out of nurses and stuff they ran out of machines too yeah they the uh, but wall they increased their capacity like 50 percent within a week we, we don't have that ability no and so for us our, our Distancing and our primary care measures are important to stop sudden impact on the health system. So, so doctor, you know, one of the one of the appeals I'd make a logical thing is We know that more than eighty percent of people are going to be just fine. You don't need to have a test to see that you've got COVID unless we tell you to, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, we've got pretty good public health. I think listen to what Bonnie Henry says. Uh, they've posted pretty decent stuff on the public websites. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't have a treatment for COVID. Uh, No. You have more than 80% chance of being fine. Why do you need to know that's what you have? That's... Uh, It's really, uh, if it's very impressive for you to know, we'll figure it out. But we're going to be short of test kits until the supply chain improves. We're going to be short of protective equipment. Doctors' offices don't have enough. No. You know, if you go and you sit with all the other people... That perhaps have immunosuppression, whatever you're going to pass it on. You know so I don't want to concentrate it in places like that. So I agree with the decision to to keep people you know self- quarantined. Um, Indeed, the people who get really sick need to go. and so so what I'm saying is the testing needs to be kept outside of hospitals and outside of doctor's offices, and this is where the public health system has to have a responsive structure. Well, I think so The Greens have been highly successful is with drive-through testing. Exactly. You know, and the thing is that you really need the testing for the sick people.
0: I think we're going to get an announcement Monday. I thought it was going to come yesterday, doctor, but I think we're going to get an announcement Monday about some drive-through testing. We're, they're, they're just yeah. not able to get the pieces uh, so, operating yet. A car is a good incubator and isolator. Yeah. Keeps you
5: keeps you away from the others. Uh, so this, they've turned to doing this in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the balance about 15% will get really sick, and about another 5% will need ICU. And that's what I do have a treatment for. By the time you need ICU, if I don't ventilate you, you have pretty much 100% chance of dying. If I do ventilate you, you have about a 50% chance of surviving. Mm-hmm. So that's where you need the treatment part of the system. Exactly. If you're one of the very ill, a very good chance of surviving in hospital as well, i.e. ill but not needing ICU. Mm-hmm. If you're part of that group, we can get you by with oxygen
0: and supportive care. It's nursing and oxygen and care. I'll take a cannula in my nose and a sip of water if i can get it doctor we got to run it's a pleasure speaking with you thank you for uh wising us up about just how few ventilators we've gotten how many more uh icus and step uh step down beds we need Uh, thank you and know whatever we do from here uh, you know at least this is
5: a trial run one of these days if this thing doesn't land as hard as it is in other places we need to
0: prepare for the next one So, what effect is COVID 19 having on the local hospitality industry? We have with us now Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant Association. Good morning. Morning, John. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. We were talking, uh, I guess it was a few weeks back, about the various pressures on the, uh, you know, food and restaurant uh, business and the what's going on with uh, increasing taxes and lease rates and all that. And now, boom, we get hit with this. Holy smokes, Batman! I mean, how how is how is the industry handling it? How are individual restaurateurs, and what does this mean for you know servers and cooks?
4: Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of complicated. I am, but I am optimistic. Um, and I just, by the way, your guests this morning have been amazing. Oh, thank uh, you. What we've seen uh, in the last, I don't know, four or five days. The first thing is is that you know, business doesn't like uncertainty and this is massive uncertainty because mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was really surprised to hear Maureen talking about the, the North End restaurant last night and then I sort of thought, well no, I'm not surprised because if you look at the uh restaurant a restaurant and and people say, Oh, don't say that but but it, it's arguably probably one of the safest places you can be, providing that all things are being checked all the boxes are being checked. So
2: yeah.
4: <laughs> hygiene, food oh, handling God. Uh, you know, healthy staff, um, social distancing. A lot of restaurants are moving chairs now just to make people more comfortable. So mm. there is no reason not to go to a restaurant. And if you go to a restaurant and you don't see visible signs, you don't see visible signs of uh, sanitation cleanliness, and leave. That's so. That's that. Sure. So that's, we're, we're talking about that, and um, and I think in some cases it's working because I think you know we talked about going skiing. Go to a restaurant mm-hmm. and have a beer. Relax. Yeah, you gotta get out. You
0: can't you know, this the psychology is awful. If you just you know, feel that you're 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 already sort of self containing, self isolating. That's that's we're gonna go nuts. This is crazy. People need to go out and do what they need to do. And and you know, I mean, as we've talked, you and I have spoken about this. I mean it it's it's part of our culture. That we, you know, we go out and we have a good time. Sometimes you bump into friends and so forth. In this case, you're yeah. gonna keep a certain distance, but you don't feel that you're living in a closet or a box.
4: No, it, exactly. It, it, it is a it is in that nature. It's kinda of laughing, you know, and even when in in the caveman it is in the nature too. They get mm-hmm. together a bunch of cave people and sit and eat their in their feast. So sure. um so what we have to do here is we have to keep the public confidence we have to i've seen more statements from restaurants about we're doing this we're doing that we're you know we're doubling down then it's fantastic the issue is though we are going to see uh some that you know i mean in victoria for example we were there on thursday mm-hmm. and uh, they're seeing some restaurants are having a tough time because senior citizens are not going out right so we are going to see some potential layoffs in the industry albeit temporary but the, the, the and that's not the good side. But I mean, the, the the federal government came out with a package to allow people to get EI right away. So there's no mm-hmm. wait period, and the provincial government is going to come out this week with another package, which I think will help to protect employees, which is absolutely an imperative uh, priority for us because when this when we get through mm-hmm. this, oh, we need all those people in our industry. We can't lose them. Right. But. You know, I think the thing is, John, is our conversation two weeks ago, I'm in the middle of putting together some requests to the government to do a couple of things. I think that we should uh, ask the government to postpone the minimum wage increase June 1st. hmm not, not get rid of it, but postpone it, because that's cash out at a time when these businesses, they don't have a lot of cash, and I think no. a lot of them will, be, will, will, will go out of business potentially. hmm Property taxes in the city of Vancouver going up 5% plus it's oh, ridiculous, yeah. right? I mean, how can you do that to a small business, any small business owner, not just a restaurant? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking at things, really novel things, like uh, our partners of input on uh, utilities, like Fortis. And how can how can everybody in the community help and defer, not not give away, but d- defer the costs that restaurants are facing to help get them through? And same with restaurants we'll probably be talking to landlords uh Mm. how they can sort of you know work with them for a month or two and then i think we're going to come back and i think we'll normalize but if we don't do some uh remarkable technical things and think outside the box i think you used that term earlier yeah then i think we're going to have some some casualties here and we're going to regret it because it doesn't have to happen
0: well, and as you point out, uh, you know you've got you've got workers. It doesn't matter whether it's a line chef, uh, you know, your maitre d', your hostess, uh, you know, people who know your business, they know your customers, they know your clientele, uh, you know them. Uh, and to try and you know if the people get laid off and they move on and then to try and rebuild that the costs associated with that the the pain and aggravation it's not good for the, for the workers their families uh, and and so. What you're talking about is having some elasticity in the system here, deferring some of the uh, the costs, and buying some time, and allowing the um, the hospitality industry to sort of back up. Catch your breath and survive through a very tough period. So uh, you're, you're you're putting together a package, and are you, are you dealing with people in the provincial government to make this happen? Yeah, we've
4: yeah, and it's uh, you know we're not doing we're not doing elaborate uh, PowerPoint presentations. This is like here's the request, put it in, mm-hmm. and they've been very responsive. I, I mean, this the the provincial government I think has done a great job for us. In our industry, Mm. uh, the chief medical officer has been a wonderful backdrop for us to be able to make statements like you're safe to go out. I mean, she's been remarkable and calm. And, you know, I just, you know, I saw a whole bunch of stuff this weekend, too, John, about people saying I went to my local business. It doesn't have to be a restaurant, but I'm talking about restaurants this morning. Mm. And uh, I bought a $20 gift certificate and I'm going to spend it in a couple of months. I'm going to put some money back into the system right now. Nice. And that'll really help a lot because you just, you mentioned this, this whole communal aspect. Most restaurants now are clustered in communities mm-hmm. and they are the little watering hole. And, you know, uh, that type of behavior, maybe buying a gift certificate now for use, label, those things will really, really help. And, and, uh, I don't know. It's. I, yeah. I. I think. I think we're going to get through this pretty well, but not if we just let the system just, co- you know, without doing anything and let it just collapse on itself. It, it will be disaster for sure.
0: Yeah. So it's it's going to need a little intervention, and as you say, the federal government stepped up. Uh, the the uh, unemployment insurance or employment insurance provisions have been uh, sort of modified so that. It, yeah. I, you say you can get it right away. I thought you had to wait seven days or something. No, they took the one-week wait period away. Wow, that's and great.
4: And they also, so we don't know the details here, but any any restaurant owners, the Federal Business Development Bank has money now
2: mm-hmm. to help
4: small business in in times of a cash crunch, and I think it is a very, very uh, low interest uh, credit facility to help them through. So that's that nice. was announced on Friday, but I think that's going to help as well. Well, that will obviously help as well too. Sure. And, you know, I think, I think they're going to be pretty fast on it. You know, and I, it's not going
0: to be hard to access the stuff. I think it's going to be quite immediate. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, we don't want to, as you say, these are, these are social places as well as they're, I mean, they're part of our community. And if we start losing this, we're going to lose a lot more than, you know, just the jobs and the the work. So, yeah. very important. Well, I, I really appreciate your input on this, and uh, keep us posted in terms of what's, what's happening with the uh, provincial government and uh, whatever programs and uh, announcements. That, when do you think we might see this? Somewhere is around midweek or the end of yeah, next I week? Yeah, think,
4: I think the government might even be coming out with something tomorrow. I think they, wow. they recognize the urgency here. So, uh, yeah, I will for sure, John, and I really appreciate all the work you're doing to, to shine a spotlight on this one, and we'll just keep... Keep this economy. We have to keep this economy moving forward.
0: It's and we and we all can play a small part in that. Indeed, like you say, go out and buy a gift certificate at your local restaurant and uh, yeah. support your community. Absolutely, if somebody if people have got anniversaries, you know, uh, retirements. They've they've got birthdays coming up. So uh, you know, if you're going to give them something, give them something that they're going to enjoy and use and and remember and and create absolutely. some create some absolutely. Uh, we've just been talking with Ian Tostenson of the uh, uh, BC Restaurant Association about the challenges that uh, the businesses are facing. And we heard earlier this morning uh, Whistler Blackcomb shutting down. Uh, people are getting laid off. We have on the line now from uh, Sam Firo to Markin uh, LLP lawyers, uh, Andrew Goldberg. Good morning. Good morning, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, it's a very scary time with this uh, COVID 19 thing going on. And, uh, you know, people are, in some cases, they're getting laid off. In other cases, uh, I guess, you know, you come back from, let's say, you had been down in the States. And you come back and you have to self-isolate for 14 days. This seems to be just a tremendous amount of uncertainty. What are our uh, rights and obligations as employees uh, in a situation like this? Well, John, that's a very good question. And obviously, this is a extraordinarily
6: unique time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the big thing to keep in mind is health and safety is the primary concern here. Mm-hmm. So if you're an employee and you're unwell, you certainly have the right to be at home and not be at work. Um, if you did go to uh, one of the hot spots and you were traveling and returned home, you do have an obligation to self-quarantine, as the government has said. Um, and that's like the long and short
0: of it now with respect to being at work. Mm-hmm. But do you get paid? Uh, I mean, I, I mean that's the thing. You know, as as a if I if I, let's say I happen to be down in the states, and then you know we find it, the, the health uh, officials are telling us, you know, scurry home, uh, get back because we're not quite sure what's going to happen with the borders and other things. So you come back now, you've got to uh, self quarantine for 14 days. Uh, I can't work, but can I get paid? I mean, uh, do the, you know? I, I mean, I can't claim I'm not sick. I can't claim sick time.
6: Well, that, and, and that is an excellent question. I think, I think the first thing to keep in mind is an employer should canvass the possibility if that individual can effectively work from home.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
6: if that is a possibility, then they can continue working and they can get paid for their work. So that
0: should obviously be kind of the first thing to look at. So it sounds like um, the, the reasonable accommodation provisions of the Labor Standards Act. Well, precisely, yeah. And I mean, it's the same way that if you have a any kind of disability, for
6: instance, and mm-hmm. if, if there's something going on with you that you need to work from home temporarily, yeah. an employer should canvas the possibility that the employee is able to work from home um, productively to some extent and keep paying them for the work that they're doing. However if it's a type of company where work from home is just not possible, then unless provided for under a contract of employment, from a legal perspective, in most cases, an employer is not required to pay that individual for being at home and not working, which obviously creates quite a bit of concern for many, many people who rely on their weekly or biweekly paycheck to get by.
0: Mm-hmm. But I guess that's perhaps what, uh, you know, um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and uh, the Finance Minister were talking about last week when they came out and said, "Well, okay, we're changing the EI provisions so that." Uh, and Ian Tostenson from the Restaurant Association just told us that they've they've softened this uh, system so you can basically get EI almost immediately. So you're going to get employment assistance, I guess, uh, but you don't get. I mean, you don't get your full your full salary when you get uh, unemployment insurance, do you? No, you don't. You get a
6: percentage up till max of, I believe it's just over $550 is kind of the mm. max weekly entitlement. Wow. So yes, obviously uh, you made a, a very good point where the government has um, imposed a system where previously you had to wait a week to qualify mm. for EI benefits and now you will qualify immediately for the benefits so you won't have a period of time where at least you're making no money. Right. So it is... It is a step in the right direction. You're you're also 100% correct to say that that amount of money is not, in most cases, going to be commensurate with what the individual had been earning in their paycheck, right? That's right. Um, And I know the government is still looking at other avenues. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, if things don't... It's a very interesting time. You're right. I mean, things are so dynamic right now. Things are changing every day, so it's hard to tell You know, today we might be here. Where are we going to be tomorrow? But assuming things don't go off the rails completely, Mm -hmm. you know, 14 days, two weeks, if that individual is able to go back to work after those two or uh, 14. yeah, it's After those two weeks, then, you know, although they're not making the same amount of money for that period of time, Mm -hmm. hopefully it's enough that they can they can get by.
0: Indeed. Now, let's take a look at, you know, we just heard uh, today or yesterday, I guess, uh, that the uh, Whistler Blackcomb Vale Resorts, which owns Whistler Blackcomb here in British Columbia, uh, has decided to shut it down. So, I mean, we have uh, people here who many of them are from Australia and New Zealand working in the resorts, uh, you know, running the the chairs, uh, the lift operators, uh, food service people, uh, you know, hospitality, people working in the hotels, a lot of people are going to be laid off uh, as a result of this. Um, in terms of your rights as a as a, a worker, uh, should they get advice? Should they go to the Sam firou to Mark and website? I mean, you know, what what's going to happen to these people? I mean, yeah, they can maybe claim EI, uh, but in the long run, if this thing goes on for, you know, for a while, it, it could get a little scary. It definitely could. And,
6: and, you know, really it's going to have to be something that's determined on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. So if anyone is concerned about being laid off and kind of the legitimacy of, of it, I definitely would recommend giving us a call so we could discuss the matter further. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, this really is a very novel somewhat novel situation. I mean, we did have SARS relatively recently, but uh, um, th- it's an interesting situation. And, sure. you know, we kind of, it, a lot of it, it really is a balancing act. You have employers who are concerned about the health and safety of their employees and if, and their customers, right? People sure. that are coming there and, you know, look at the NBA, the NHL, all these sports leagues that have completely shut down um, yeah. to protect vendors, customers, employees. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the legitimacy of the layoff will play into it. I also find it interesting. It's not really a legal point, but you look at companies and whether or not they're legally obligated to do so. You know, I was reading about the Vancouver Canucks, for instance, Mm
2: -hmm.
6: the season shut down. They've decided to keep paying their employees, notwithstanding the fact that they're not asking them to come to work. Right And I would say, you know, maybe they're not legally obligated to do so. But, you know, when companies of that stature, of that size, with with money in hand, decide to make a decision, you know, on a moral basis, you know, it it does a lot of very good things. So it's, it's nice to see Canadian employers kind
0: of, Doing the right thing, regardless of their legal obligations. Indeed, yeah, no, it's beautiful, as you say. The Canucks are standing by their workers, uh, continuing to pay them, even though they're not able to ha- host the games, and they, you know the workers aren't coming in. I guess the the plus side from uh, from a corporate perspective is they hopefully will be able to re- retain their staff. And if you've had to train people and you have costs associated with that, it's an investment. And then maybe you can write that off. You can say, well, this is a loss. So.
6: Oh, exactly. But it's nice to see. I mean, during times like this, you know, it's it's nice to get into like the legal um, aspects of it with you. But but by the same token, it's nice to see that as Canadians,
0: Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we don't even have to ask those questions. We're just doing the right thing. Right on. Andrew Goldberg, Sam firou Markin, employment lawyers, truly appreciate your help, Andrew. Thank you. Not a problem. It's a pleasure for being on. Oh, there's a lot of big issues with this COVID-19 thing when it comes to being in the workforce. Uh, We just heard Ian Tostenson from the uh, Restaurant Association a little while ago suggest that perhaps the provincial government should defer the minimum wage increase that's coming. Uh, There are issues with EI. Is it enough? When do you get it? You can get it right away, but does it really cover uh, we have Whistler Blackcomb shutting down layoffs. People coming back from the states, 14 days self-quarantine. Uh, there are people who might have put their children into uh, a camp or something over the spring break and now the camps are closed, so maybe they got to stay home to look after the kids. Where does this leave the workers? It's a pretty scary situation. Joining us now, Laird Cronk, the president of the BC Federation of Labor. Good morning morning john hey thank you so much laird appreciate it so uh the bc fed uh clc uh organized labor has been out in front on this and it looks like you've made some pretty good headway at least in terms of the uh, federal government uh what do you see going on right now in terms of uh workers and and the COVID 19 thing what's on the horizon for you
7: well thanks uh, and thanks for having me on this morning um you know look this is uh this is an extraordinary moment in time, unusual unprecedented uh, mm-hmm. none of us really uh wanted this or saw this coming to this extent uh, around the world
0: no kidding. Um,
7: so job number one uh from a labor lens perspective from a mm-hmm. worker perspective,
2: yeah,
7: job number one is stopping the spread I mean we don't want our economy collapsing we don't want people mm-hmm. sick um uh, and you know, injured. We want to see things continue on the best they can. Follow the follow the advice of the health officer. I think the province has done a very good job. Uh, the minister and the and the public health officer. The number one job is to make sure workers uh, who are feeling ill don't go to work. Mm-hmm. And that's really our primary focus here. So uh, there's in British Columbia, John. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Employment Standards Act, were unusual. We're one of two jurisdictions in Canada that has no protected leave for workers if they are feeling sick. So there's protected leave for workers if you're looking after a child under 19, for example, Mm. non-paid leave. There is no protected leave for a worker um, if you don't have it under a collective agreement. Like if you're not not in a union and, and you don't have those provisions... There's no statute protection, nor is there any pay, obviously, uh, if there's no statute protection. So our concern is frontline workers, somebody could be at a gas station, it could be in retail, it could be in food service. You know, let's say, for example, they make $15, $16 an hour, Mm -hmm. they're feeling uh, ill, and they're worried if I I tell my boss, will I still have my job? If I don't go to work, will I still have my job? And, And if I don't go to work and I don't get paid... Will I lose my apartment at the end of the month? So this is what we're focusing on with government, to yeah. have government step in and take away that uncertainty.
0: So most provinces have this. Is that what you're saying? Most provinces have protection for workers. So if you're sick uh, and you you just can't work and you shouldn't work, and of course we're in a highly contagious disease situation here where we've got you know both the health minister and the provincial health officer on TV every single day and on the radio every single day telling us, you know, Self isolate if you're if you're sick, you know, stay away, phone eight one one, you know, figure out whether or not you need to be tested and so forth. But you could be either fired for not coming in because you you don't have that protection under the labor code in BC. Or you could go broke uh, uh, if you stay home because they don't have to pay you if they, if they don't fire you. And, uh, you know, or you end up feeling compelled that you got to go to work sick and maybe infecting your co-workers or your boss.
7: Well, that's, I mean, this is the issue. So we don't want workers to have to face the untenable decision of if I don't go to work, will my job still be there uh, when I get back? And if I don't go to work, How do I pay my rent? How do I pay for medicines? How do I pay for groceries for me and my family? Mm -hmm. So really what we're saying, these are unprecedented times. Look, there's lots of employers. First of all, some folks have collective agreement provisions with sick days. So there's that piece. But if you don't, um, there are some employers uh, who have the ability to have their workers now transition to work at home Mm -hmm. uh, or have the ability to provide them some sick pay. Um, But there are some that do not, Uh, many that do not, as a matter of fact. So what we've said in this extraordinary moment in time is government should step in. Now, the federal government stepped in by removing the one-week waiting period. And that, you know, a good first step, one-week waiting period for federal EI sick pay. But I want to bring to your attention, you have to, (laughs) there's still barriers. You have to um, have worked 600 hours in the last 52 weeks to be eligible for that Mm. if you're self-employed. You would have had to register over a year ago for special EI benefits. And you need a doctor's certificate, which is the opposite advice to the health officer uh, about going to the doctor. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you have these symptoms, you're the phone. So and, and on top of all that, you get 55% maximum of your wages recovered. So what we're saying, I've said it to the provincial government. I was pleased to see the premier tweet it mm. out, I think it was Friday, when meeting with the, uh, with the Prime Minister, that he would be pushing for more so the workers don't have to make this untenable choice. Yeah. Um, but somewhere along the line, provincial and federal, we need to make sure workers' jobs are protected. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, if one worker decides and they're ill to go to work because they're afraid of this, that could cause spreading. So we, we need to take those conditions off the table so that workers can go. Ireland, by the way,
2: yes, now has
7: a provision that kicks in immediately um, if the doctor says you must self-isolate, you mm. immediately get, I believe it's 305 euros a week. Wow. Um, they can do the uh, certificate without going to the doctor. Mm-hmm. They can go directly to government. And, uh, and it's two weeks coverage if you are told by a doctor to isolate. And it's uh, coverage for the duration of the coronavirus uh, illness if you mm. are determined to be ill.
0: Wow. So I mean they're they're light years ahead of us because we don't even have guaranteed sick pay in our Employment Standards Act, and if you if you if you do take the time off, and you go on EI, the maximum you can get is fifty five percent. So if you've been living close to the edge, and your family depends on you, um, even that you might even though you might get EI you might say, I better still work because, you know, 55% of my, if I get 55%, that's just not going to be enough to get by. I mean, that's pretty scary. This is
7: exactly the concern that we have. Right. So what we're saying and we've been calling on now for for a week is for the provincial and federal governments to sort this out like post-haste so workers Mm -hmm. are not put into this position. Because again, job number one is to make sure no worker in this province goes to work when they have symptoms, when they're feeling ill. I heard the Prime Minister say no worker should um, have concerns about their job when they don't go to work because they're ill. Well, that means there really should be barriers removed for all workers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really our focus. Uh, Whether it's the provincial, the federal, a combination of the two, uh, really we need some kind of two things. One, protection for that job when you go back. Uh, And number two, which happens in other provinces to Mm -hmm. varying degrees already in statute. And number two, that there's economic relief for those workers so they're not worried about, you know, justifying to themselves maybe it's just a cold because they're worried. Sure. The underlying fear is I might not have an apartment or be able to find one if I go to work, don't go to work, sorry, uh, yeah. you know, this week and next
0: week. Well, that—that's—I mean—that's just brutal. That's pretty scary. I mean, number one, uh, you're not going to get paid if you don't show up. Uh, you know, if your employer can't obviously allow you to work from home or something like that, uh, and then, Lord forbid, you're you—you you actually get onto EI, and EI is maybe fifty percent of what you used to make, and like you say, you know, you can't pay the rent. Holy smokes Batman. So you you're you're on to the provincial government and the federal government to do something about this. Do you think there's any hope? Do you think there's any uh any light at the end of that tunnel?
7: I do think there's hope. Um, I've had uh, a strong reception and discussion with the provincial government. I mean, obviously they've done a, I think again a fantastic job with the public health officer and with the Minister of Health. Yeah, they've they, been out in front um, on this thing. They, they have. And, you know, they've articulated the path to ensuring we don't have spreading, we don't have a collapsing of society, we don't have a lot of people, um, you know, unfortunately get sick with this, which we want, want to avoid at all costs. So so there's been a good reception to our concern. I think it's mm-hmm. recognized. The question is, how do we address it? And right now, the federal government stepped in. I would say they took half a step on the path. Yeah. Um, the, I know our premier tweeted that he has push the federal government to go the full step whether they do or not i'm not sure but really we are uh we are there's no time to waste here if Mm -hmm. if the federal government doesn't take the full step uh, we will continue to push the provincial government um to fill that gap because every day workers have to make a decision whether or not they go to work
0: absolutely every single day we may have people going to work ill uh and hiding it because they just simply can't afford to uh either you know take Take sick time uh, out of their pocket, or risk losing their job. I mean, holy smokes! This is because, uh, as you say, you know. I mean, the, the bottom line is this is for not just for the protection of the worker; it's for the protection of all of society. Because this is one way. You talk about community spread. Well, there you go. I mean, we we know that three administrators, somehow at Lionsgate Hospital, apparently not in regular contact with patients, uh, all ended up positive for covid-19. So, you know, it's happening. It's happening in workplaces and uh you know, if you're forcing people who are, you know, not protected and made made like you say, you don't have a collective agreement, you don't have provisions, uh you're you're compelled to go to work, it's going to be you know, we're going to get more cases and and maybe more people very 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 sick.
7: Well, you know, like workers are i don't believe there's a worker in this province that wants to go to work ill that wants to put themselves or others in jeopardy but truly when you're faced with uh, um, you know is the landlord going to say i don't have to pay rent this month if i take yeah. two weeks of isolation because i'm showing these symptoms um and will i have the job at the end of it that's a critical decision workers have to make you know i've been on Many uh, media platforms in the last number of days, as you can imagine,
2: mm-hmm. and some
7: of them had uh, call, call-ins, and we had many workers call in and say, I would never want to do this, but faced with that decision, I'm going to have to make a tough choice. So, sure. again, the focus is to get the government. This is extraordinary times. Businesses mm-hmm. are also hurting. I heard Ian Tostenson. I agree. Business is hurting. Yeah. Uh, this is a time for government to step in and uh, in this extraordinary moment and take the economic uncertainty for workers away, protection for the work. And economic uh, relief. And then we can have another conversation down the road about how we address this in statute once we're back on an even keel so that we come into line with the rest of the provinces and territories in the country. Uh, But let's job number one, make sure workers are safe and we don't spread this.
0: Well, I mean, we've learned something here about the Employment Standards Act in BC. Uh, it's got a big hole in it, and somebody's got to fix that. But as you say, in the meantime, let's let's get on with this and make sure that the uh, everybody is protected, whether you're you got a collective agreement or not. Well, Mr. Kronk, exactly. thank you so much. I really appreciate. It. Laird Kronk is the president of the BC Federation of Labor. I want to read you a little something. This is this is a story that just really got under my nails. It just so. This is from the New York Times. Uh, Dr. Helen Y. Chu, an infectious, infectious disease expert in Seattle, knew the U.S. didn't have much time. In late January, the first confirmed American case of the coronavirus had landed in her area. Critical questions needed answers. Had the man infected anyone else? Was the deadly virus already lurking in other communities and spreading? As luck would have it, Dr. Chu had a way to monitor the region. For months, as part of a research project into the flu, she and a team of researchers have been collecting nasal swabs, <clears throat> excuse me, nasal swabs from residents experiencing symptoms throughout the Puget Sound region. To repurpose the test for monitoring for the coronavirus, they would need support of state and federal officials. But nearly everywhere Dr. Chu turned, officials repeatedly rejected that idea. Interviews and emails document that even as the weeks crawled by and the outbreaks emerged in countries outside of China where the infection had begun. By February 25th, Dr. Chu and her colleagues could not bear to wait any longer and they began performing the coronavirus tests without government approval. So this is an ethical conundrum, and to help us look into this and to see what the appropriate things and the right choices are, we're joined by Tom Koch, medical geographer and ethicist. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. I'm very good, no cold, actually. No no fever? <laughs> no, just a few sniffles here and there. Okay, uh, You know, it's been, it's been very cold in Vancouver, man. It's like, uh, I think it was like minus one. You're
8: self-isolated there in the booth, so we can (laughs) continue safely.
0: This is true. This is true. So this thing just got, got under my skin, this story about uh, Dr. Chu. It really, uh, I find it very aggravating. She had thousands of nasal swabs, which she was testing for flu and, uh, And then you end up with the coronavirus outbreak, which, you know, has a high fatality compared to flu. And uh, she's not allowed to. She's already got the samples. I mean, you just think you'd be weeks, maybe months ahead if you could test those samples. And they wouldn't allow her to test those samples.
8: It sounds pretty bad, doesn't
0: it? It sounds awful.
8: Uh, This is a really good lesson and sometimes how to read these stories, which seem to be very simple. But, in which there's other issues which come up which are behind the scenes and aren't immediately apparent mm-hmm. the she was denied permission for several reasons. federal and state officials said it could not be the study couldn't be repurposed because there was no explicit permission from research subjects to use the samples. Now, there's a reason why we have very stringent requirements on using bodily fluids and types and getting permission from people and having them a little narrow. Mm -hmm. We've had instances in the past where people collected, for instance, genetic samples, which were supposed to be for one purpose and which would be reported back to the community and which were then used for many other purposes, never to the benefit of the community, which never heard from them again. And so permissions in this area are set that way. These things can have real ramifications, for instance, in terms of insurance, as well as in terms of care. Mm-hmm. So for one thing, she didn't have permission, whether in collecting the samples, she got data from the people about being able to get back to them and saying, hey, yo, can I use this for another thing? We don't know. Right. Most permissions which are signed will also have some contacted data, and we don't know if she had it or if she tried to use it. Mm-hmm. So some of the caution was about the way we set things up to try and protect people when we collect physical samples from them.
0: Well, let, Another let me, thing me... we don't
8: know is it's about her lab or about the test she was using. Right. And that's important. One of the things we found out from the United States is that down there, they didn't have a good testing procedure. They weren't like us up here in BC and in Canada. Mm-hmm. And the p- testing procedures the CDC had were flawed, and you couldn't get the kits anyway. So the question was, was her lab at a level which could do this work? And it was not certified for this kind of work. That's right. So there there are some technical questions beneath this which say these people weren't just being obfuscating bureaucrats. These people had serious questions which weren't being answered, and they were acting on the side of caution.
0: Okay, but okay, we've got the issue of whether or not her lab was up to speed, and I can, I can sort of buy into that. She had a test. She created her own test just the way Mel Kradshin did here at the BC Center for mm-hmm. Disease Control. They cooked their own test for the COVID, uh, or I'm sorry, you, you say, what do you call it, SARS something or other? Uh, the name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2. Anyways, she cooks up her own SARS-CoV-2 test, right? And uh, they say, well, you know, that hasn't been approved. Your test isn't approved. And your samples weren't, uh, you know, gathered specifically for coronavirus. So basically, we don't like your test and we don't like your sample. So basically, go pound sand. I think this is preposterous. It's ridiculous. This is out to lunch. Uh, the bottom line is here that the CDC Washington's test was bad. They had to recall it. They had to rejig it. Uh, her test was as good as as anybody's, as far as we can tell, and apparently it's it's still pretty good. And her samples were well taken. Now, you know, what's the worst that could happen? That, you know, somebody somebody's sample turns up positive. Well, she did find a kid. When they tested, she broke the rules. She broke the, the ethical boundaries. They tested the, the samples that she had, at least started to test them, and bingo, right away, they got a, a kid in high school. And so then they advise yeah. the uh, health uh, people, who the, the health protection workers, who go to the high school and they catch the kid just as he's going into class, just as he's going into the school that day. Okay. And they John, isolate John, him.
8: stop a sec. Let's just... They don't catch the kid, they find the kid. You're making it sound like uh, he was a criminal. They don't catch the kid; they find the kid.
0: Okay, they it's find him. They don't
8: that the CDC and others didn't like the test. They didn't trust the test. They wanted to make sure the test was better. And certainly, the CDC it had problems with it, and they therefore had a reason to be somewhat distrustful of any test which hadn't been benchmarked.
0: And they get they get a let's say they got a false positive. What's the worst that can happen? Is anybody going to die because? somehow uh, the samples get tested for this uh, no, SARS-CoV-2? No, probably not. No, no. So science but, so they, they, science they don't. isn't about being
8: right. It's about being right in a way that others accept. We've had lots of examples over the years of people who had a point, which sometimes was proven right, but where questions were raised that the researchers couldn't answer. You're raising a greater question here, which is, when there is a public emergency on, what do we do with someone who breaks the rules to try and find a way, and they may be right, to better identify and to better treat uh, a new and existing uh, virulent illness? And we saw this, you might remember, with HIV-AIDS in the first years when all sorts of people were coming with, I found the cure. Mm-hmm. And of course, nobody had.
0: Yeah, but we're not and, talking about a therapy or a cure here. We're talking about identifying people who might need treatment. That's what it comes down to. And, and in fact, they,
8: people right. And so, they did.
0: And, and so the worst case scenario is they, they pick somebody out of a crowd or out of a group from this, uh, from the flu samples, and they say, well, you, you should get further tested for this because you might have a, a disease that has a much higher mortality than the common flu. And then they find out, well, guess what? You don't have that disease. So, okay. So you're not going to die and, and the treatment isn't going to kill you. And the worst thing that happened was you had to go to the doctor's office or maybe you got uh, isolated for a couple of days. I think, I think the greater good is that you find some people who really need treatment and you might be able to prevent the spread of a disease that has a much higher mortality than, you know, the common flu.
8: You're right. But again, the real failure here, the ethical failure, lies not only with Dr. Chu, who broke the rules, yeah, uh, and was impatient with them. And as I said, science is about not only being right, but being right in a way that everybody accredits. And she we don't know, did she take her nasal swabs from far up the passage? Uh, apparently, she did, at least in some cases. We don't know a lot about what she did. Mm-hmm. But the real question is, we were able to quickly create, identify, test, and confirm a way of testing for this. In the United States, for a lot of reasons, they were not able to, to develop a good test, and they weren't able to get even their bad test out a lot of
0: time. Unless you were Dr. Helen White, Chew, in which case you had a good test, and you had good samples, and, and basically nobody wanted to talk to you or listen to you. In fact, they shut her down. They, they ordered, yes, they, 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 they had a phone call with the CDC and the FDA, which has to approve the test. And they said very clearly, cease and desist. Stop testing. Don't test those samples.
8: If they had said, send us your test, let us confirm it. In the interim, take a day to see if you can get a hold of these people. If you have contact, do you have contact information? It would have been a different story.
0: Yeah, I so, don't know about that. I mean, you know, look, is, whether I got the flu or whether I've got COVID, I mean, I've I've given a sample for a medical test for you know, it, it's not like you're you're testing my blood and then you're you're you know selling my genotype to a foreign company or something like that. I mean, it's like, hey, do, do I have the flu or not? No, hey, guess what? You got a worse flu than than what we thought you might have had. That's it. And it's a type of flu.
8: We don't know. How big of a sample was she dealing with seniors? She found a kid. How big was the sample, and where was it located?
0: Well, it doesn't Ideally, matter. I mean, if the it was all kids or all seniors, it doesn't matter. Start. It doesn't matter. You've got samples, and they're nasal swabs, and they can be tested for this particular thing. Why not test them? You know, it's, it's like we've, we're already halfway there. You know, the tank's half full of gas. Let's go. Like, what what's the problem?
8: Well, as I said, the problem is that her test hadn't been verified. She didn't have permission. And the CDC, the CDC could have bent the rules. Mm-hmm. They could have said, in this instance, we can go ahead on a tentative basis while we test you. And we're going to test your, your test while we go. I think that would have been perfectly possible and reasonable.
0: Well, she also had to deal with the uh, with UW, the University of Washington. And the, the, right. the, the story notes, it says on March 2nd, oh, this is as late as March, Seattle Flu Studies Institutional Review Board at UW determined it would be unethical for the researchers not to test and report the results in a public health emergency. So they review it and they say you should go with it. The CDC says no, and the FDA says no. I mean, I just, I just think sure. it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's because federally an emergency had not been declared. Yeah, well, maybe that's part of the problem, and that's, um, that, that took uh, our red it, uh, it took her sometimes to get
8: you to say, yes, you can go ahead, even though you don't have permission. Right. In these situations, as they quickly evolved, And a lot of researchers are jumping in. Some of these safeguards make sense. We have ethical review committees like they have at UW in this Mm -hmm. area. We have federal agencies in the United States and separately in Canada to monitor to make sure that things aren't done, which we will regret later. I'm not, I mean, at the moment, it seems like she had a good test and she had a jump on the game, and the data that she was returning would have been useful and certainly was useful in Washington to say, hey, yo, Jack, it's already here. Mm-hmm. But I would be a little cautious in, in high dudgeon, given the fact that a lot of these things are a little more complex, and really, if the CDC in the United States had been doing its job, if they hadn't gotten rid of the Executive Task Force on Infectious Disease at at the White House. They might have been in front of this. If they hadn't, in fact, over the last several years, strangled the CDC for money in the United States, they would have been on top of this and worked better with Dr. Chu.
0: There you go. Okay, we got to run, brother.
8: We got to run. out there, But it's a little more complex than I think you're making it out to be.
0: Thank you. I appreciate the tune-up. There are varying opinions in policing on the value of offering rewards. But there are certain situations when a reward can be very effective. We'll likely know soon whether the RCMP's hunt for an accused kidnapper in Surrey is one of those cases. Corporal Eleanor Sterko, what happened this week with one of your serious crime suspects, this Miaz Noor Elden?
9: Well, we've actually amplified our hunt for Mias um, yes, Noor Eldin by collaborating with the Crime Stoppers as usual, and then bringing in another partner, which is the Bolo program. Mm. So, I would like to say that the world did become a little bit smaller for Mias yes, Noor Eldin, um, as you know, people all over Canada will now be looking for him and ready to turn him in or information that leads to his arrest, and uh, they could be eligible for a fifty thousand dollars reward. How much? 50, 50000 so $50,000, yeah.
0: Wow, that's a serious uh, reward. And, and who actually puts up that money? Where does that come from? Is that out of the taxpayers' pocket? <laughs>
9: No, this is actually something from the BOLO program. And the BOLO program was started by the CEO of Garda Security, which is an international security firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the chairman and president of that company, he believes strongly in public safety. He works; uh, His company works in collaboration with police all over the world. And so uh, he be- began this program in assistance of police, assistance of law enforcement agencies in an effort to help us Um, To sort of amplify our efforts in catching some of our most wanted people
0: right on so let let's say somebody might have some information about Noor Eldon What do they do? Who do they call?
9: Well, we're asking people who have information about, um, Yasnor Eldon to call Surrey RCMP. They can speak to one of our investigators if they want to remain anonymous. They can also go through the Crime Stoppers program. And it is important for people to know that you don't have to, um, go directly through police if you want to remain anonymous. It does not make you ineligible for, um, you know, the $50,000 reward. You can, uh, have that facilitated through Crime Stoppers anonymously, but what we are looking for, we're not looking for witnesses, we're not looking for people to testify, we are just looking to capture Miaz Noor Elden.
0: Well, this is, I guess, a very important program, because unfortunately, uh, in the criminal underworld, uh, you know, bad guys know bad guys. And the people who may have information on Mr. Miaz Noor Elden may actually have warrants out for their own arrest. They may be involved in criminal activity. They may not want to shine a spotlight on themselves, but uh, $50,000 is a powerful persuader. So uh, this is a great opportunity for people, I guess, if they've got the information. And, And as we know, bad guys often do bad things to other bad guys too. So he may have some enemies out there.
9: Well, you know, um, that's the the whole idea is to make the world uh, smaller. There is nowhere that Mies nor Eldin will be able to go in Canada where his face will not be. Um, and, in fact, because of the World Wide Web and how the social media works truly around the world, people will be now um, seeing his face, knowing that we are looking for him, that he is wanted on Canada-wide warrants, and that all it takes is information leading to his arrest to get that $50,000 reward. And it is true, there are people for a number of reasons from all walks of life who do provide information and I, I would say actually that Surrey RCMP um, has been very successful when we work in partnership with the community members. Uh, we receive tons and tons of tips from people, uh, the majority of um, news releases and things where we are asking for help through the media mm-hmm. to identify suspects in a variety, any kind of case really. Um, they often uh, receive information through the public and through Crime Stoppers that allows us to advance our investigations. So right. now we're just doing this on a bit of an amplified scale. Um, we're really intensifying this search by really just expanding the size of our community. Instead mm-hmm. of having our local community, lower mainland community, the community suddenly becomes people from all over Canada with their eyes and they're being on the lookout for uh, Noor Elden.
0: Indeed. Now tell us a little bit of the background. What is he charged with what is he wanted for
9: well he's actually wanted right now um, on a Canada-wide warrant uh, related to To uh, human trafficking, kidnapping, um, assault, but he has other provincial warrants in British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario related to drug trafficking, human trafficking and the sexual assault. So um, there are interests in more than one jurisdiction in locating him and of course Canada wide warrant meaning that he is returnable on his warrant uh, anywhere in Canada. So um, anyone with information across the country who um, has an idea or information that leads to his uh, capture would be eligible for a reward from us. You know, and we also, you know, we know that uh, Mr. Um, Noor Eldon could in fact even be listening to your program now. So, mm-hmm. you know, we would say to him that, um, you know, there is nowhere for you to go, and we will apprehend you sooner or later. So, you know what, just do the right thing, call a lawyer, turn yourself in. You know, to your relatives and friends, um, they may face charges for accessory after the fact if they are assisting you in evading arrest. So do the right thing, turn yourself in.
0: Right, exactly. So the bottom line is, uh, you know, if he's got a lawyer, and he probably has, uh, phone the lawyer, Say, it's time to turn myself in and let's do it nice and simple and safely.
9: That's right. And, and, you know, you bring up a good point when you say safely because we do not ask public to try and apprehend Miesner Elden on their own. We're not looking for people to take him into custody. We are asking anyone who sees him on the street to immediately call 911. Don't try to arrest this person on your own. Um, if you have information, call us as soon as possible.
0: Beautiful. Corporal Eleanor Sturko, Surrey RCMP, thank you so much.
9: Thanks for having us.